Well, good morning, OCC Chapel, those who are watching live and those who will be watching later as it's recorded. We uh, just welcome everybody. Uh, our theme this morning is celebrate and remember. And there's a lot of things that uh, we actually have to celebrate. We made it, all right? We were able to be residential up until the last week of school. That's something to celebrate. And we can also celebrate that even though we had a COVID outbreak and a lot of people are in isolation or quarantine, because of technology, we can still connect together. Uh, I think that's great. Lots of things to celebrate. And we're getting ready to head off for our Thanksgiving break. And hey, Nothing better than Thanksgiving, all right, all the food to pig out on, being with family, that's something to celebrate also. I'd kind of like to begin talking to you, sharing with you about uh, how the Zustiak family would celebrate. We would celebrate all the usual holidays, you know, the usual national holidays. But the one holiday that we really tried to make special, really tried to make a big deal, were birthdays. We wanted our boys to grow up feeling like they were really special, that we were proud of them, that we loved them. And so Mary and I tried to go all out on their birthdays. So we would invite all their friends over for a big birthday celebration. We had cake and balloons and, and games. And of course, there was the inevitable opening of presents. But you have to understand that during most of my kids' younger years, when presents were really a big thing, I was either in college or graduate school. You know what that means, don't you? That means that I had to spend all of my money on tuition and books, and so our family was stinking poor, man. And so... At best, we could maybe buy them three or four gifts at the most. And, you know, if one of those gifts was an electronic gadget that they wanted and it required batteries, we would even wrap up the package of batteries and make that one of the presents. Of course, and the kids weren't insulted by it because whenever they had opened up that package and it was batteries, they were like, oh, there's got to be a game in here somewhere. So they really didn't mind that. Now, do you know how long it takes for a seven, eight, or nine-year-old to open three presents? About a nanosecond is about how long as it takes, all right? They just rip into those things and pff, it's done. So when all of their friends would be over for their birthday, you know, and they would go, okay, open the presents and there it's done. They're like, well, what do we do now? And so it was kind of boring. So we had to come up with something to make the opening of presents last longer. So my wife, she's really clever and smart. She came up with this idea that we would hide the presents somewhere in the house. 
And then we would give the kids a clue. And then they would share the clue with all their friends, and they had to go and try and find, you know, where that present was hidden. And sometimes that clue just led to another clue, which led to another clue that was attached to one of the presents. And pretty soon, the word kind of got around in the community, and every kid wanted to come to our kids' birthday parties because they didn't care really so much for the cake and the balloons. They wanted in on the, the follow the, crew, the clues to the mystery challenge. Where are those, those presents hidden? They loved it. And uh, as the boys got older, however... The clues had to become harder. And so I especially remember this one. The clue was, look under water. So where would you look? You know, under the kitchen sink? Yeah, nope, not there. Two bathroom sinks? Nope, not there. Water heater? Nope, not there. We even had the aquarium. No, it wasn't there. Where in the world would you look under water? Well, the answer is you had to pull our dictionary off the shelf and you would look under water. And there would be the clue. Um, so later, when the boys grew up, and we, uh, we moved here, and I was professor, and we had more money to buy presents. I remember my oldest was about 22 or 23 years old, and so he came home, and he was in the military, and it was his birthday, so we were having a big celebration, and we probably had a dozen presents for him. We had them all stacked up on the big upright piano in the living room, and, and after dinner, we all went into the living room, and I said, all right, Josh, go ahead and open your presents. And I'm not kidding you, this 22-year-old boy almost had tears in his eyes. And he says with a kind of a breaking voice, aren't you going to hide my presents? And it's like, Mary and I look at each other and kind of, yes, we are, all right? And so we scrambled at the last minute to try and hide his presence and come up with a bunch of clues. You see, because of a tradition that we started long ago, it wasn't a proper Zustiac birthday celebration unless your presence were hidden and you had to figure out the clues. Now, a recent tradition that came about, I was a speaker at Camp Sooner uh, over by Oklahoma City, and on the way home, I stopped at Pop 66 Soda Ranch, where they have, I don't, it's amazing, they offer over 700 different flavors of soda. Now, some of them are really nice. They're fruit-flavored. You can get mango and pineapple and cherry, but others are absolutely disgusting. We've got teriyaki beef soda. We've got dog howling black cherry. We've got bacon soda. We've got celery soda. And the worst one, we've got ranch dressing soda.
So what I did is I went and bought these little communion type cups. And uh, when every, all the family was there after dinner, I said, we're going to start a new game. And so I opened up one of those and I poured it into the, the little cups and I didn't let anybody know what flavor it was. And we handed it out to everybody, all the grandkids and the adults. And I said, all right, down the hatch. And everybody had to, and then they had to guess what flavor it was. And so, you know, the grandkids, they loved it. They're making faces and gagging and just make a big deal over it. And all the adults are looking at me like, all right, you and your youth ministry ideas. But, you know, that next year, as soon as the grandkids showed up for Thanksgiving, what do you think is the first thing they asked? Grandpa, are we doing the soda test again? And I said, you betcha we are. And all the adults are like, yeah, they didn't really care for it. But you know, when a family tradition started, you don't mess with it. There's something uniting, even exciting, I think, about mutual celebrations and traditions. I think it's unfortunate that the word tradition has received a bad rap uh, in recent times. I mean, if I were to say to you, would you rather attend a traditional service or a contemporary service? And I know that most OCC students would say, I would rather choose a contemporary service because you perceive traditional as stiff boring, unexciting, dull music. But that's a misunderstanding of the biblical understanding of tradition. Jaroslav Pelikan summed it up with this quote, and he said, tradition is the living faith of dead men. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. It's traditionalism that gives tradition a bad name because there are some very valuable aspects of tradition that we need to learn and we need to pass on to the next generation we need to honor them and to look at some of those we're going to turn to the jewish festivals that are found in deuteronomy deuteronomy chapter 16 and one of the things we'll find here, I'm going to read the text as we look at these three uh, feasts. There's several key words that keep appearing throughout Deuteronomy 16 as God is imparting these three festivals to the Jews that they were to keep. Every male, every year had to attend and to keep these three festivals. And the two words, two key words are celebrate and rejoice. So let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 10 and 11 and 13, 14. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings that the Lord has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your town, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. 
celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. You see, for the Jews, the observation of the feast days was to be a time of celebration, a time of rejoicing. Would you say that your faith is typified by celebration and rejoicing? Are your Sundays described as a time of celebration and rejoicing? And if not, how come? Irwin McManus, in his book, Wide Awake, he tells about a friend of his that he met at seminary. And when Irwin first met him, he thought that this was the holiest guy in the whole school. And the reason that he thought he was the holiest guy in the whole school is because he was the most despondent person he ever knew. He would watch this guy, and he would think, wow, that is one holy guy, because he's always dark and down and brooding. He says, me? I was having a good time. I was hanging out with my wife and playing racquetball and surfing and, and just enjoying life and generally having a blast. But Irwin get, would get around this guy. And he would think to himself, man, I'm such a pagan. I'm such a loser. Because he would ask this guy, he would say, how you doing today? And this guy would, he would say something like, wow, the Lord's really, he's really breaking me. And Irwin would think, wow, he's really holy. Man, God's almost never breaking me. I wonder what's wrong with me. Maybe I'm such a lost cause. God doesn't even bother with me. Other times, Urban would ask him, he would say, how are you doing today? And this guy would say, oh, man, the Lord's disciplining me. And to Urban, it seemed like this guy was always in deep places with the father while Urban was off <laughs> enjoying life. But one day, after one of his typical responses about God breaking him or God disciplining him, Irwin realized something. And that was somewhere in this guy's past, somebody had imparted to him false idea that holiness meant the absence of happiness. Now, we have a theological term for that. If you believe that holiness means the absence of happiness, this is the deep theological term for that. A crock. That's what that is. It's a crock. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Faith is not supposed to rob your joy. It's supposed to enhance it. God is love. God is life. 
And you cannot know God's love and not enjoy life. Holiness does not leave you hollow. It should make you a hedonist. No one should enjoy life more than you, Christian. Paul instructs us in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit. And so I say, drink up, drink deep, enjoy life. Enjoy all the beauty around you. Let every moment be filled with joy and wonder. John Piper has written a very popular book entitled Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And the premise of this book is simply the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 36, 8 says, they feast on the abundance of your house. You gave them drink from your river of delights. The goodness of God, the very foundation of worship, not something that you should pay respects to out of some disinterested reverence or a sense of obligation or duty. No, it's something to be enjoyed. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is the source of complete and unending pleasure. <coughs> Psalm 16, <coughs> excuse me, Psalm 1611 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, let me clarify something. I don't mean that God becomes a means to help you get worldly pleasures. No, that's, that's not it. The pleasure and joy that every Christian should be experiencing is the pleasure which is found simply in relationship with the Lord God himself. He's the end of our search, not a means to some further end. Our exceeding joy should simply be in the Lord, in our relationship with him, not streets of gold or <coughs> reunion with relatives or any other, you know, blessing from heaven. Christian joy does not reduce God to, you know, some key that unlocks a treasure chest of gold and silver. But what should take place when you are in relationship with God is it, it transforms your heart so that, like Job said in Job twenty two twenty five, the Almighty will be your gold and your choice silver to you. God intended 
that the corporate life of the Jewish nation and even the individual life of the believer should be driven by joy. I mean, the dominant motif of the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was to be this universal joy over what God had done in providing for all of Israel's needs. Another observation from the Feast of Weeks is that special provision was made not only for one's own family, but also for the economically deprived in the local community. See, the sacrifice was a time for the family to rejoice before the Lord, but they were not to keep that joy to themselves. The meal was to be shared with the servants in the household, with the local priest, with the Levites, as well as with the alien, the fatherless, and the widows who lived among them. God's gifts are bountifully received, and it's intended that they should be bountifully shared also. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the words holy day and holiday are deeply connected. People with the deepest religious convictions should be the happiest people in the world. Every day is a holy day or a holiday when you walk with the Lord. So I guess I have to ask, do you serve the Lord joyfully or just reluctantly out of some sense of duty? Do you look for ways to share your joy with others? Or is this just some private experience for you to enjoy? Well, not only do we celebrate, but we also remember. Another key word, Deuteronomy 16, is this word remember. In Deuteronomy 16, 12, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. After Israel moved into the promised land, God wanted them to remember that life hadn't always been that easy and that their ancestors lived in tents and booths for 40 years after they left Egypt before they even got to enter into the promised land. And we all know that absolutely no younger generation ever wants to hear the old people talk about the difficulties of the good old days and how you guys just have it good. You know, don't you just hate it when someone says, when I was your age, I had to, you know, fill in the blank. All right, you know, walk upwards in the snow both ways to school, you know, every day of the year, you know, five miles there and back, you know. We, we don't want to hear that. But the Lord actually wrote the memory of Israel's past into the Passover and tabernacles, the first and the last feasts of the year. And while the church must not live in the past, the church must never forget the past of what the Lord has done for his people down through the ages. Because we're, 
we are a people who tend to just take our blessings for granted. And we forget the faithfulness and the goodness of the Lord. In God's presence, when the worshiper comes, becomes aware of God's past mercies and his present forgiveness and the prospect of the future blessings, there should be such an expression of deep joy and celebration. It ought to be just natural and spontaneous. I, I know there's times when we need to grieve over our sins in God's presence. But I think maybe it's even more important to rejoice and to acknowledge all of his gracious benefits. So while Israel's worship was focused around the temple, the Christian's worship is focused around the cross and the empty tomb. Paul said that Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. It's been said that the unbelieving drink on Friday and Saturday to forget. But we Christians drink on Sunday to remember. The purpose of the Passover was to cause the Israelites to remember God had delivered them from a slavery in Egypt. Our Passover communion should do the same. We should remember that God has redeemed us and saved us from the cruel slavery to sin. And he set us free. And that's something to be thankful for and to rejoice over. Charles Spurgeon was once emphasizing to his class about the importance of making your facial expressions harmonize with your sermon. And so he said, when you speak of heaven, class, let your face light up. Let it be irritated with a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. And then one of his students said, but Brother Spurgeon, what, what should our face look like when we speak of hell? And Spurgeon said, well, when you speak of hell, your ordinary face will do. <laughs> well, how, how do you remember and celebrate all that the Lord has done for you? We go back to the Shema, simply by loving God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That's how we celebrate. That's how we can communicate our thankfulness and our joy in the Lord, by loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as we leave for break, let's celebrate and remember. <laughs>